Are your settlements as wondrous and captivating as your dungeons? No? Well, then stick around as we delve into the guide for world-building settlements in your Dungeons & Dragons games. Hello and welcome, heroes, to the Crit Academy. I am your host, Justin. I'm your co-host, Ian. And I'm your co-host, Matthew. Yes, we have a special guest filling in for Brandon. Uh, Matthew has been on the show before. Thank you again for joining us. We're really excited to have you. My it's pleasure. It's been a long while. Yeah, so. this is just so surreal to be back in here totally renovated. <laughs> it's very exciting. A lot of good work's done, so thank you for joining us today, where we hope to inspire you with creative content that we can you can bring with you on your next adventure. So I have to admit, I'm really excited uh, for this. We're, we're trying a little bit of a slightly new format. We're going to be more open to a, a wide discussion format instead of the usual, and we'll see how it goes. So the D&D world is wide and wondrous. We all can agree, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's filled with monsters and magic. However... Most people live in relatively safe communities, and even bold adventurers need safe havens from saving the world and liches and and every other big bad you can imagine. These areas are points of light in the dark world, and they share some common traits. When you think about it, the civilized areas of your world are the place that the characters are going to spend the most time in, right? Well, there's downtime at the very least. Yes, and there's a lot of opportunity there, right? There's civilized sanctuary. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, and that's funny you mentioned sanctuary. I've been playing <laughs> Diablo Immortal. And uh, <laughs> on that. sanctuary, there's, you know, you've got these little towns and stuff where outside the towns, everything is destruction. So you got to have these nice things. So and everything out there wants to kill you. Yes, <laughs> and if it doesn't want to kill you... No, they only want to kill you. <laughs> so uh, what that means is when it comes to building settlements, mm-hmm. we want to ensure that we build fun and exciting and memorable locations. So for us, we have a laid out plan of questions you can ask yourself while world building to really help bring those places to life, even if they're going to be temporary stop stop signs on the adventurer's path to bigger and more extravagant places, right? Now, the first question you'll we'll need to ask about each settlement, town, whatever, is what purpose does the location serve? What does that What does that mean to you, Matthew? Um, you know, there could be a lot of things, you know, like, for example, a mining town or a farming town Ooh, or... That's good. Uh, or, and to be more diverse with a farming or the mining type, what sort what sort of resource are people farming or mining? You know, is it gold or is it silver in the mines? It is the farmer's specialty a type of uh, fruit or wheat or I love that. Also it could be a, a trade route or a frontier for or maybe in some cases the capital. Yeah, those are those are really good points. So when you're designing a city or a settlement, whether it's a farmhouse or it's a capital city, deciding on what its purpose is before will be one of the first questions you want to ask yourself because it's going to help you lay get the lay of the land, right? What features you're going to include. And I actually like what Matt said here about um, understanding what the, the, the purpose of it is, is because when you're fleshing it out you have to constantly ask yourself okay it's a mining town what are they mining how are they getting it out of the town who's buying it who's utilizing it who's coming to get it who is the town's client oh that's really good too i like that <laughs> who's the town leader yeah. although, although i guess it touches on the a later question yep that's a little bit but that's still a good thing to consider and when it comes to you know answering that question it has a wide variety of answers but the goal is to help you diversify because if you say i'm building a mining town and now you're building another town you're going to think well i already built a mining town better not build a mining town right so um it's going to drive diversity Mm -hmm. in your um adventures and campaigns right Mm -hmm. um 
What's the most unique settlement you guys have ever had your characters venture into? Hmm. <laughs> it's been a bit too long. I think in our Plane Shifters campaign, I think it would be the... Um, oh, what was it? The embassy of the Selesnia Conclave. Ah, yes. You know, it's a there's a mixture of civilization and nature. It's it was something that I wasn't expecting. You know, the vines and the branches integrating with the Raptican buildings. Yes. And all that. Although I was kind of think, although to be honest, uh, I was kind of thinking uh, for the Selesnia Conclave, being as advanced as they are for mm-hmm. Ravnica, I was thinking somewhere along the lines of of uh, something that was shown in Netflix's Voltron, you know, the people who live in the forest mm-hmm. and, and how it's a good they, show. If you haven't seen it, it's awesome. Yeah. And how they spoke with nature to shape it where they would coexist, where the people and nature would coexist together. That would have been something interesting for, uh, the Celestia conclave. See now that's, that's really cool and memorable as he discuss discusses that, you instantly get a sense of wonder where you have a mix of nature and, and urban design, which isn't something that you run into very often. What about you, Ian? I remember one game of Pathfinder. We were in a small settlement, which cast our off as a fort. And the idea was it was on the front edge of the frontier. And the idea was more people would settle it as time went by. But it was so small, it didn't have a name until just to screw around with a... The rest of the party, we got attacked by mercenaries, and my character very loudly referred to it as the town of Dickwood. <laughs> ah, there you go. And the mercenaries escaped. So I'm like, oh, guess what? People are going to call this place now. Oh. And if I may, there's actually one other uh, great example, but it's not something that my characters experience. It's something that I've witnessed uh, in the second campaign of Critical, Critical Role. Role. For those of you who don't know, I'm a huge fan of Critical Role. It's what got me into D&D in the first place, which is which is why I hold it in such a high regard and such matter. Yeah, and, and as fair. a DM, it's very hard to live up to that standard. Yes. But I try each and every day and fail each and every day. <laughs> no, actually, um, when we did uh, Storm King's Thunder, you did a pretty good uh, impression of an NPC that Matt Mercer did. Um <laughs> When we went to that northern town, I remember it. The uh, the, the the Victor, yeah, it was Victor, yeah, Victor the black the black powder merchant. Oh. That was a great impression. Yes, well, thank you. So um, anyway, right. the, so to go back to the what I, to the example, uh, I was thinking of a campaign to a town of I think halflings or gnomes called Hupper Duke. It is the it's Hupper a. Duke. Yeah, <laughs> I, I kind of figured that would make you laugh. <laughs> oh, Duke. <laughs> so what the what the purpose of the town uh, or the city per se is that it is the I believe it's like the manufacturing and uh, research and development uh, city for the Dwindalian Empire's uh, weapons of war. You know, like siege weapons, cannons, firearms, and whatnot. There was, Matt Mercer narrated that there was mention of some uh, blast craters on some open fields of the city that was uh, corned off from everyone. You get the sense that was like the experimental sites and whatnot. Sorry to go off on a... uh, It's a good tangent. It's the exactly point of this, right? Yep. So um, that actually bleeds into, as a good segue into our next uh, question you want to ask yourself is, how big is it going to be, right? <laughs> I mean, you're going to like, I want a vast, giant farm. <laughs> well, if you're going to build this just ginormous 10,000-person farm, you're probably farming people. <laughs> pretty much. You know what I mean? So, so. Oh, to be fair, some plantations did get pretty big, too, and were kind of small industrialized towns in themselves. So. Oh, yeah. But that definitely influences the type of yep. processes you're going to have, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. So if we keep going back. We keep talking about – we talked about mining, so I want to kind of keep going back to that. Right. And that's worth mentioning too that depending how big the town or settlement is can definitely influence what supplies might be available to the players as well too. Like, oh, that's a really good point. Yeah. Because a large town are, is more likely to just simply have more resources that players can draw from and therefore more likely to have like let's say items or those who can craft them. That's a really good point, and that's something that I think 
fifth edition could use a little more work on describing because we know that it's not really high fantasy. It's it's kind of somewhere I would say it's a low fantasy setting. Not as bad as like Lord of the Rings, but it's very up to the DM how much they implement. But when designing yeah. your city, you can say, okay, this is a city like Waterdeep. Mm. It's huge. It's massive. There's going to be a few people selling a few magical artifacts, a few different – maybe not artifacts. I didn't mean artifact as, in, as the quality, but <laughs> you know what I'm going there. Um, so that makes a good point because you're not going to walk into a little hovel like the Shire and be like, all right, where's me a magic written – oh. <laughs> Bad example. <laughs> Usually in a shire, you're not going to find a magical item. In that case, there was one, but that's yep. that's that's like a diamond in a rough. Right, right. Nothing about Kindle Keep. Kindle Keep's a good example, yep. which we did not explore in our Avenus campaign. It was just a stopping point for us. Yep. yep. And actually, there's a book out there that allows you to really expand upon that, the Candle Keep Mysteries. Yeah. Um, which, which is basically is just one massive library. So. Yep. So you pick up a book and, oh, here's a quest. It was actually kind of cool. But anyway, so how big of it? So uh, going back to the mine, if you got a small mining town of, you know, 100 people, that's going to have a different structure than a mining town of 1,000 people. Oh, yeah. You're going to have more resources. They're going to be mining. They're going to be putting out more output. They're going to have more clients, more people coming in. Um, and the, the structure is going to be different. You know, I imagine in a, in a mining town of 100 people, you have wheelbarrows being pushed around. Yeah. And a th- with 1,000 people, complex cart pathways in and out of mines that are supported just like a whole new structure. And the, the process is just more refined. Yeah. More industrialized. Yes. And so that's kind of how the, the – that's how the, the size of your town can really impact the way your – building around it even if it's just a fishery right Mm -hmm. if you've got a small little port town you're going to have people going out on their little tiny boats and throwing their nets overboard casting them pulling them up and that's probably about it but if you go into a a massive harbor that's got you know a thousand people in it you're probably going to have people who have big giant boats that got 20 people on it that are trolling with a big giant net behind it and it takes more people to do the work you're going to probably potentially do they have they don't have canneries in 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 dnd do they why not I, don't I, mean, know, I guess they had it in uh, uh, Mistborn, so and that was a fantasy setting. But um, so uh, the size and how big it is can really play a, a, a big factor. So the next question is, who lives there? And I think that there's a great example for this. Um, back in our Storm King's Thunder campaign, you had my character and Ian's character travel to a, a small uh, blacksmith village mm-hmm. that is run by orcs. Yep. And uh, their specialty, make weapons and armor. And what better way to do that than a, than a race that, is, that loves to fight mm-hmm. than orcs. They're great, they would be great at forging mm-hmm. uh, in terms of metal for weapons and armor. That's a great example. But another uh, common example would be like, um, like a dwarf, like a hill dwarf city that also is good at forging weapons and armor Mm -hmm. you know they would be on the surface and well and you make a really good point there right because the types of way they make their weapons are going to differ right (laughs) or let's say like depending on who uh ah fishing time run by merfolk that actually like people (laughs) that's really good at those girls yeah i'm pretty sure that's brandon And a mining town, as we kind of established, I can picture dwarf living there, but I can also picture maybe like yeah, if it's like big enough, like okay, here's how it actually works out. Yeah, we go to the town itself. <laughs> humans live there, but we make sure go inside the mines below ground. That's where the dwarves live. Ooh, I like that. I really like that. That's kind of a, 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 a symbiotic relationship, yep. right? I mean. Hey, why do you guys live down there? Hockey little place with no ceiling. What's wrong with you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would be a great example for Arakokura. No ceilings for their houses. Oh, that's a really good example. Yeah, because they can they can just fly up and not just take the door. <laughs> yeah, and that and, and so those types of things are going to influence the way the city is designed, right? Um, I, I want to continue off the Arakokura thing because I think that's really awesome. If you have an Arakokura village, what? are you going to do with that? For first thing that comes to my mind, if you have a group of Aarakocra, now I do realize that they are from the, uh, yeah. aren't they from the elemental airplane? I don't remember. Um, but trees, cliff sides, there's options, all that stuff. And you can tie that into what they do, which we talked on previously, instead of a mining village, maybe they're messengers. 
Yeah. And so their entire village. They're the city's the, messenger. Yes. Um, and the entire village or city is on the edge of a, like a valley and they got all these little, uh, little, um, like holes that they just fly into and each hole is going, information going to a different location. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh! They become mailmen. They're literally <laughs> the fantasy mailmen. <laughs> yeah. Man, I really I, that's a that's a really good one because you also want to think about the population distribution too, right? <laughs> Is it mostly humans? Is it all one race? Do they deliver babies? Like, I would imagine there'd be stor- stork aracocras, right? <laughs> Just carrying little packages oh, on gosh. the ends of their end of their beaks. <laughs> all right, and what's our next question here? Well. Any installment, who governs it? Who's in charge? Who holds the power? Like, <clears throat> you may or may not have empires, large kingdoms, but you also may have city-states too. Or sometimes the cities or towns just, like, are off in their own autonomous region that might be part of a kingdom, but they more or less keep to themselves. Like the Two Rivers, for example. Yeah, Two Rivers is a good example. Like, they're technically part of a kingdom, but everybody kind of forgot about them, so they kind of ran themselves. And that's <laughs> hilarious. Yep. That's that. That's a really good example of size making a difference, right? I thought it was hilarious, too. Two and the two rivers spoke like, wait, we're perfect kingdom? Since when? <laughs> Since oh, yeah. forever. I think I know a good example to establish this. Like if you're doing the Forgotten Realms as your campaign setting mm-hmm. and you want to create a homebrew world that's not on the map mm-hmm. or a homebrew uh, settlement that's not on the map, mm-hmm. uh, you can ha- create a homebrew member of the Lord's Alliance mm-hmm. who governs that settlement. Ooh, I like that. Mm-hmm. Or a Zentarum one who governs oh. it and rules with an iron fist. There's plenty of background shadows too. Yes, I love it. It's good stuff. So those the power structure is important because it's going to affect directly how the players are addressed during their adventures, specifically their consequences of their actions. Yeah. So uh, if a lord, let's go back to the Zentarum we were just talking about, if that person's got some stuff going on and the adventures come in and diddly it up. <laughs> they're going to now have some issues and I can see him totally coming in, grabbing the players. Like, look, the characters are like, you guys are, uh, I don't want you here. You need to leave. You're going to cause trouble and start making look like any problems that arise are their fault just to keep them away from what else might be going on. Yeah. <laughs> and w- maybe they just bribe them to leave. Like, look, I adventurers are nothing but trouble. I need you to leave. Let alone that inside the person, the Zentarum screaming, you destroyed half my team. <laughs> <laughs> But he ain't going to outright say that, right? Yeah. And that power structure is going to affect how the the wealth is spent too, right? Yeah. Um, yep. That's a big one. If you've got something like The Two Rivers from the uh, – what is the book series I'm reading right now? Wheel of Time. Wheel of Time, thank you. <laughs> I'm on book 11 and I couldn't remember the name. Anyways. Uh, um, it's a large book series from what <laughs> I've told. 14, I think. Uh, so uh, in the, the Wheel of Time, I would say that The Two Rivers, everyone is about helping each other. Yep. 15 even got the prequel book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's only one book, though, unfortunately. Follow the Dragon Reborn? No, it follows Moraine. Aww. <laughs> yeah, when her and Man each, met each other for the first time. Okay, that's a little more interesting. Uh, anyway, <laughs> so, um, when you're deciding on the government and who holds power, that can affect the plots, the hooks, yep. the interactions. Um, I really think that when you got a good uh, yeah. hierarchy, their kind of persona reflects down on the the people. Yep. So if you have somebody that particularly has a disdain for dwarves, yep. that disdain will probably follow through to the all of their yep. servants or their, their followers. Yeah. And so when the player comes in, that's a dwarf. Everyone hates them, and they find out it's because the leader of this town is a elf. Yep. <laughs> He's just got some beef, you know? Yeah. All right. I'm not thinking about, like... Uh... In the Discworld series, the one of the main cities, Ankh-Morpok, is governed by a partition. And the City Watch, which kind of ties into the defenses question we have coming up here, uh-huh. is like, it's only four people. But the reason why the police force is so small is because crime used to be a problem in this city, to the point where the person's like, well, if it's that bad, we might as well legitimize it, so they made a thieves' guild. <laughs> get, get, <laughs> we can't stop the crime, so let's just allow it, but control it. Get, and tax it. Exactly. <laughs> tax it, Yes. <laughs> And you can't commit crimes without a permit. <laughs> so now you gotta pay for a permit. Wait, 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 wait. You can't steal from me. Where's your permit? <laughs> yes. And then, and then without actually pre-scheduling the crimes, the crimes too. 
Oh my goodness. That What's is worse hilarious. than being rule shocked is being rule shocked by an NPC. Oh my goodness. Wait, 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 wait. Which guild are you with? And you practice crying without a permit. Well, let's just say large men with uh, sticks with nails in them since I show up here. So they're actually a more effective police force than the actual police force. Oh my goodness. Oh. Because now you're taking away their business. Yeah. And if there's one thing we can count on, any sort of corporation is screwing over the little people. Wow. <laughs> Even if they are uh, entrepreneurs yep. Yep. <laughs> of the illegal variety. Oh, you're going to see my painting? Uh, give me a moment so I can share it. Uh, go ahead. <laughs> there. I'll look him this way. You take the painting that way. All right. So there's um, that's there's a lot that goes into deciding on the culture. And Ian already uh, mentioned it. The the next question you're going to ask yourself when developing a um, a, a good settlement, whether it's a city or a town, is what are its defensive? This is a big one yep. because I feel like people forget about this. Yeah. And because of it, the adventurers get away with doing stupid stuff. <laughs> that they should not be getting away with if there was any sort of people that are designed to enforce the law. So yeah, whether... this vi- it can vary depending <laughs> on how big the settlement is. Mm-hmm. Yep, I think that militias are pretty common for the smaller ones where it's just the the farmer and his pickaxe and maybe one retired adventurer. Um, as a, you know, uh, soldiers, professional, um, might be hired and do double duties in, uh, the, the settlement. So yeah. maybe they're a soldier one day and the next day they're an extra farm hand during yeah. crop, crop times. Okay. Why did he piss walking statues? Yep. I didn't know that. That was in the dragon heist book, I think. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Some I that, do remember that. Something that we probably never got to when we did that. Yeah. We didn't run that very long because, uh, Brandon hated us. <laughs> <laughs> And didn't want to finish running. It was, I think, just some scheduling issues with the new job too. So, yeah, I'm still gonna blame that on him. <laughs> That's what I do. So, anyways, um, the reason why this matters is because uh, a good example with you know Waterdeep, as uh, uh, Etsy's girls talking about, or Brandon's talking about, is um, if the player characters do some sketchy stuff, I got arrested in my life, my character's life threatened <laughs> for drawing a weapon. I drew a weapon, and they were about ready to stomp my face in. The city guard, yes. <laughs> the city guard. Like, their job is to beat my face in if I draw a weapon for no reason. And that's one of the laws in Waterdeep. So yep. the amount of power that it takes to enforce that is reinforced by what well, the guards may not be necessarily that strong, yep. but the magistrate who runs everything have all kinds of power. Okay. Mm. Or maybe the guards individually aren't very strong, but there's lots of them. Yes. I mean, a thousand guards can take down a... Especially in 5e's mechanics-wise, right? Yep. With the bounded accuracy. But even beyond that, a 1,000 guards, adventurers, if they get the jump on them, they might be okay with a fireball. But eventually <laughs> that wizard going to run out of spells. Yep. You just keep throwing soldiers at them and eventually yep. succeed. So I knew their weakness. All the people had a preset kill in it. So I just sending waves and waves of soldiers so they all died and they all shut down. <laughs> <laughs> one, of my, one of my favorite defenses is the more classic, based off the... Uh, the West world, West, the West world, right? Where you got like one um, chief or one sheriff, and he's got a deputy and maybe a couple grunts. But the ta- time, the ta- ta- the town is so small that that's all that they can afford to pay. Yeah. But well, the person that they hire, or all they need, or all they need, I was gonna say, or because the, the person that they hire is really, really good, mm-hmm. and that can make all the difference. Uh, Walking Tall is one of my uh, favorite yeah. uh, uh, rock movies, and and he comes in, this this one guy cleans out all the corruption because he's just awesome. Yeah. <laughs> the actual police officer that uh, moves to be off of was actually even more awesome. Oh, yeah, I didn't I didn't know that was based off anything. Let's just say the mafia killed his family, and then he had nothing to lose at that point. So he kind of <laughs> Oh, that's totally uh, the same story as uh, The Punisher, isn't it? Yep. Man, that's a good story. We should do that. But anyway, so when you're deciding <laughs> on the defenses, you use that to... I don't want to say control your characters, but make sure they have yeah. to deal with consequences of their thievery, weapon brandishing. Yeah. You know, if you follow the laws of the land, which is a previous episode we touched on, you should totally yeah. check that out. Um, it uh, it touches on all the different varieties of laws that exist, like brandishing a weapon without reason is a huge fine. Mm. How many times do your characters always are, I'm going to attack that guy, I'm going to draw my blood, I'm going to go... I'm gonna go you know, I'm going to give him a good poking, you know? The chaotic evil ones. <laughs> yeah. Like, like there should just be a guy following around passing out fines. Yep. Yeah. Just like, oh, hey, Billy, good to see you. Here's another ticket. You know, we don't, <laughs> we don't do that because, honestly, in some cases, that's not as much fun. 
But as soon as you yeah. do that a couple times, they ain't got no money for magic items. They're going to... Or in some cases, run. the players aren't at the town's defenses. Oh, that's a good one. Oh, I like that. That's a great so, way. Yeah. It's funny you say that. There was one time, I think I was playing 4th edition, where the um, group... I played them up to like level like uh, six or seven, not very high, but <laughs> and we wanted to retire them, so they became the nobles of that town. Oh, and the guardians. They weren't necessarily there was militia people that worked under them. Yeah, but they were essentially the 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 nobles of that area, and their new players were getting quests from their old characters, <laughs> which was awesome because the players had the knowledge. Of what they did. So one of the, the villains of the previous hero showed up again. It's one of those, I've destroyed my villain. Oh, he survived with scorched scorched body and missing arms and legs. And now he's got this big robotic construct suit. And, and he's learned magic and can, you know, push people off edges with magical power and choke them from a distance. Okay, Darth Vader. <laughs> sound, sound familiar? Yes. It was totally that. But he came back. And so their new characters had to deal with... A villain of their old characters, which was just so much fun. And so when you're designing your defenses, think about those sorts of things, especially if you just want to say, hey, I'm I'm developing this town. I think your your barbarian would really fit in here as like the chief. What do you think? (laughs) Always do it with permission. Don't be tossing people's characters into your campaign stuff without talking to them first. And that goes both ways. Yeah, because they'll hate it. Um, So I think – when it comes to the defenses, you want to think more than just the people too, right? We yeah. were talking about the people, but what types of walls do they have? What kinds of weapons are they carrying? Can they afford a few trebuchets or can they do, have, do they have sentry towers? Do they have patrols that go through the local areas? What are some other defenses before we move on that's not people related? Because we <laughs> kind of spent a long time on that. Yeah, I just flashed back to an old episode of uh, Batman the Animated Series where like Joker got an inheritance. <laughs> From who? Get an old mob boss. <laughs> but there was one point where he, when Joker was panicking, he's like, "Okay, I may be crazy enough to go up against a Batman, but the IRS? <laughs> no, thank you." <laughs> I remember seeing that clip. <laughs> Excuse me. So, that's so really administration can be a defense <laughs> paperwork. Nobody wants that stuff. All right. So the next question we're going to want to ask ourselves as we're developing out our our fantastic settlement is. Where do co- characters go to find what they need? So this is big because depending on the size of the area, which we've already talked about, yeah, they're going to need to go to different locations for resources. Mm-hmm. Um, a really good example for this is um, medicine. In a small town, the healer, the leader, the uh, the the uh, the local town magistrate might all be the same person you know (laughs) um while in a bigger town they might be different people um and so what what are some things that the characters would need that you would want to flush out with this question what comes what are the characters where do they go to find what they need what are some things they're going to need well depending on what they need but i could also so picture some sort of religious assessment being present even in a small city (laughs) yeah that's definitely a good one yeah that's great for uh paladins and clerics of the party and whatnot but that's a good one Um, um what else you got Let's see. Uh, I think basic provisions might be a great. Oh yeah, yeah. For like even for possibly even the smallest sell- settlement mm-hmm. that can be found. Like uh, things for like uh, uh, toolkits and stuff. Whether it's a herbalism kit or yeah. the 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 mage. Oh, so this is something we don't touch on very often. Wizards have spell co- components, right? Mm-hmm. And some sometimes there's places that should open up to have those. At what level do you have those? For me, a smaller midtown probably wouldn't have it. Yeah. But you can expect to find like an arcane shop in a bigger town. Depends yeah. on the component, but yeah. What's that? Depends on the, the components. Well, right, right, yeah. right. Like diamonds aren't going to last very long. So you... Speaking of diamonds, um, a great example for um, a wizard to get a spell component for uh, a spell like uh, Chromatic Orb. Mm-hmm. What's the best settlement to get the component? A diamond mining town. Run by some dwarves that you've already designed because you answered that question in the previous example. (laughs) Which is a good example. So those are the things you want to think of. Um, Other things are like uh, maintenance of equipment, right? 
um, specialized equipment. Cold weather gear is a big one, right? Yeah. You're not expected to find cold weather gear in most villages. You're certainly going to find one at the bottom of a mountain yeah. um, or in a frozen, desolate land. Of course, you get if you get there and it's already frozen. Or a town in the tundra north. Yeah. Yep. So those are – those are things that you want to uh, really consider when you're doing your uh, – yep. your um, uh, what do they need? Whether it's a blacksmith, armorsmith, weaponsmith. Um, are they all one or is it different people? Um, services too, right? Mm-hmm. They're going to need an inn. So yeah. you're going to need an inn. What service is that in? Does that inn offer like um, – <laughs> Uh, like messages to different uh, to send ahead of you, right? So hey, we got carrion pigeons or some Aarakocrans that will deliver you know messages to the next town before you get there, yep. so you can alert people of your coming, right? And is there a guild hall there? If there's if you Ooh, implement guilds one. for a settlement, that's a good one because <laughs> uh, that might be how they do all their casting too. What's right? at a guild hall? Bounties, and money, right? And paperwork. Because <laughs> everyone loves paperwork. Um, Actually, like how in the uh, Goblin Slayer, the manga, <laughs> like the application to become a guild member at the guild hall there was an actual fifth edition D and D character sheet. That's awesome. I didn't, I didn't notice that. Wow. That's the manga, not the anime. Oh. Yeah. Oh. Okay. I wonder why they can get away with that. Or did it mm. just look very similar? I mean, they... No, no, it's straight up. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, Matt, what is our uh, next question? What temples or other organizations are there? Yeah, we did just kind of talk about temples and guilds and stuff, mm-hmm. um, but it goes beyond that, right? Yep. Uh, you mentioned Thieves Guild. Secret societies is always a must in a moderately sized town. Oh, yeah. yes. A great example for this is, like, the Forgotten Realms like, four organizations. Three of them are... M- are roughly good, and the other one's just criminal. You have the Zentarm, the criminal one, and then you have the other three. Oh, it's more the... than three. <laughs> oh, what? Yeah, I think you've only, uh, we've only encountered four, I think, total. Yep. Yeah. There's the Zentarm. Lord, Lord uh, the Lions, the Harpers, the Emerald Enclave, the, uh, the uh, what, Iron Gauntlets? Order of the Gauntlets. Order, Order of the Gauntlets. Gauntlets. Yep. There's another one, too, I think. Yeah. Um, I don't remember what they all are, but there's lots. Yeah. And, and if you're playing in Forgotten Realms, or even if you're not, you can still use those and say, okay, this location might have a point for access point for the Harpers. You want to do that sort of stuff that makes sense for that setting, but also a great way to tie your characters and their needs into the campaign, right? Yep. Um, yep. I think that you can expand upon this even more, too, um, by having um, – um, a kind of an influence gauge, right? So this town has this secret society and this secret society has influences in these other locations and what the player characters do could draw attention of those societies. Yeah. Depending on the influence that that place has. If you go to one where there's a small influence, maybe the other, um, the other, uh, uh, secret societies won't do anything, but they might hear word of it. Yeah, mm-hmm. and then they do something small in another town, and then that just slowly builds up the reputation until the Zentarum finally are like, "We got to do something about these guys. They're <laughs> they're messing up our flow of our business, you guys." So that's something that really comes out of asking yourself, you know, what kind of organizations. And I do think that that um, is good because that's a good way to kind of get the political authority mm-hmm. of all the. Uh, stuff you've built in the world kind of connected together, which goes back to what you were saying about the two rivers, right? Yep. Um, that had, that has a political influence in me. That's not an Andor coming to it, Yeah. <laughs> but everyone there is like, it's not affecting my life. I had no idea we were part of Andor. Yeah. Or back at the, ke- or back at the kettle. Oh yeah. We forgot they existed. <laughs> <laughs> like, good. We need expert longbowmen. Grab them. Just from the two rivers. Good. We're going to collect like taxes. Why? <laughs> Cause we own you. Don't you win! Nobody's been here for three generations. Um, where were you when we were attacked? That's what I'm waiting for. Yeah. All right. Um, and the last question that you want to ask yourself when trying to build a wondrous and uh, exciting uh, settlement is what fantastic elements distinguish it from the ordinary? Mm-hmm. Now, in a world of D&D, most settlements have certain patterns above legends or historical influence but there's going to be some Mm -hmm. that are just more and i think that's really important if you don't have these in your campaigns you're missing out because it is a perfect way to to feed 
your little uh, birdie players a little bits and nuggets of lore about your world. Mm-hmm. Even if it's as simple as a statue in the center of that town, yeah. of a, a hero of that town. I think, uh, I don't know who I was running it with, but I ran an adventure where they were in a port town, and in the center of the port town is a guy riding a whale. Right? <laughs> and so when I describe that, what do you think is the first pe- thing people ask? Why is he riding a whale? <laughs> yeah. Do I know what it is or who is that? Right? Because I've specifically described, well, now they're going to want to know, well, that's the guy that founded the village. Mm. Why did he? Why is he riding on a whale? Because that's how he got around. <laughs> how did he get around? They say he could talk to animals. He's yep. a druid. What's that sound like to you? A druid. Yeah. Yep. The town was founded by a druid. So he had he was basically Aquaman, right? <laughs> That's all he was, but he was a little bit stronger than your average, basically a, a level like two or three character. But in that town, that's a big deal. It yeah. made him super strong, and he became this legend. Now the player characters don't know how strong he is; mm-hmm. they just know the legend of this guy that founded a town who rode a whale. You know, he rode a whale around. They don't know the full story. No, and and you don't have to explain it to him either. Give him a dice roll. Hey, here's your history check. Here's what you know. Or just talking to the the NPCs should be revealing that stuff. Natural 20. I know everything. <laughs> well, good well, point. I want to touch on that really quick. So that's a good point. So natural 20s, um, they're, yeah. they're, they're auto successes in attacks. That's it. But doesn't mean they reveal everything. Yeah. And because I'm reading uh, uh, Robert Jordan's Wheel of Time, the one thing I have learned that the information passed from one person to a next – changes so even if you get fed a lot of information how reliable is it (laughs) um but when you're developing your locations this is certainly something you want to take into consideration Mm -hmm. you want to build the defenses build the um the commerce structure the city in a way that makes sense for the theme that you're going with and that theme defines itself as you answer these questions um for me you should always have at least one fantastical area that the players get to visit. One of my personal examples is in the book, The Drawing on the Dark. Most of the book is centered on a brewery in Vienna. And it turned out in this brewery, you hit a lower level, which brewed a beer called The Dark, which which is a 500-year process. Oh, geez. That That makes it pricey. Well, actually, no, because that beer... They give to the Fisher King every 500 years to help maintain his health and immortality. Huh. That's a cool story, bro. It's a good book. <laughs> that is. Um, so when it comes into uh, one of my fa- favorite – I think when you're into the fantastic elements, you can start small. Yep. Coming yeah. across the first town that has a teleportation circle mm. in the church or the temple would be a fa- – to me, that's a fantastic element when you're low level. Yeah, but then you get to water deep, and there's like ten of them to all different locations in the world. Yeah, you know, so the what can be fantastical may not necessarily have to be fantastical on the grand scheme of the content of the world. Yeah. Though floating island battles are pretty cool, mm. um, toss those in there occasionally, but they don't have to be as grand as that to have a fantastical element. Mm-hmm. Um, so, what are some, is there anything else you guys got to talk about world building settlements here that we might have missed, or you'd like to elaborate on? I think one other aspect of it is like, um, like say for example, a long time ago there was a major battle uh, on the outskirts. Far away? No, there was a major battle on the outskirts of this large city that was once a small town. Now it gained its significance because it became a fortress and then a city and then whatnot. Mm -hmm. I like that. That's pretty cool. And that's that's a good point. You know, the evolution of towns is something you can actually show through your players. Yeah, through, so, the, through the traverse of time mm-hmm. and such. That's very cool. I like that very much. Um, all right, that's really all I have for this. Um, when it comes to world building, it's hard. It's tough. It's a lot of work. Start small, build out. Yeah, yes. That is, that is the best advice. Start on one little town. And then work your way out from there because trying to build a whole world all at once is a huge task. <laughs> Plus, if you do that, you'll end up moving things around anyway. <laughs> <So>. Yeah. <laughs> Especially if you let your player characters actually influence everything. So, all right. I think that'll do it for our main topic today, world building settlements. Before we move on to our unearthed tips and tricks, um, I'd like to take a minute to talk about Scene Grinder. I know you guys probably have already watched last week's episode where we had them on, but if you don't know, Scene Grinder is a very cool virtual 
tabletop uh, management system all kind of rolled into one. Browser-based. And it's browser-based. Now, I know you just uh, backed this, so yep. you want to tell us really about what brought you into it and what really stood out? I mean, basically, basically I... At home, use Foundry VTT, which does the job just fine. But I also wanted something a little bit lighter that I can just use anywhere too, and mm-hmm. that's a draw for me because using a browser-based uh, virtual tabletop anywhere I go is very convenient, very handy, and it doesn't. It helps a lot that it's 3D. Yep, which is one of the first ones I've seen that's like that, and that really stands out. Whether it's uh-huh. you're playing D and D or Pathfinder or or Starfinder. They've got assets and stuff going in uh, for that. Um, their Kickstarter is already way funded. I think their goal was like 10000 I think they're well over thirty now. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is a wonderful product. It really is something different that I haven't seen before. Um, being able to either look at it from a flat top-down view or a full 3D. Mm-hmm. And the fact that the player characters can run in and, and you can program NPCs for them to talk to and buy and sell and trade when you're not there is just super awesome and convenient to me. Um, and I don't think I've seen anything like that yet. Yep. So I highly recommend checking out uh, Scene Grinder, the virtual tabletop uh, Kickstarter. And actually, because it's browser-based, your players can log on at any time when you, and you don't have to yourself. Yep. It does does a pretty good job of uh, handling, like, well, what if they do this? Well, then it stops them, and they have to wait until you respond. I just imagine that text message, Ian's trying to steal some shit. Again. Again. <laughs> um, what do you want to do? Stab. <laughs> he dodges. Fireball. He's Ash. I'll wait for that text. <laughs> Anyways, I'm really excited for this. I think that we had the guys on. They were a lot of fun. So yeah. check it out over at uh, rebrand.ly slash scene grinder. That was good. <laughs> and now... What you've all been waiting for, our Unearthed Tips and Tricks segment, where we bring you new and reusable material for both players and DMs. I am super excited to talk about our first Unearthed Tips and Tricks, our monster variant, the Ferroria. Now, I know that sounds really weird. Um, That's because I started experimenting with other languages and mixing and matching to get really cool combinations. Uh, I think this one is just like uh, like uh, like uh, ice ferret or something like that, or frost ferret. I don't remember. But uh, the artwork for this thing is really really cool with the glow, but it's really adorable. Um, so I really wanted something um, for our patrons. We've been you know doing these one page adventures that kind of all tie together, and we're tying all the monsters. So this was one that I wanted to go with an ice theme, but I didn't want something vicious. I wanted something adorable. <laughs> And cute. Oh, what don't you shake your hand like that? It's adorable. Um, and uh, so I was like, well, I got to give it something uh, more defensive, you know, and I wanted to experiment with this. So first thing, we're going to start with the death dog stat block. Then we're going to get rid of it. it's two-headed, it's bite, and it's the size becomes small instead of medium. Um, we're going to give it some new features, the vulnerability to bludgeoning and fire and immunity to cold because it's a frost monster. Um, We're going to give it some new uh, uh, mechanics called the Frost Luminescence is the first one. While in freezing temperatures, the Ferroria sheds bright light within a five-foot radius and dim light for an additional five. So the damn thing glows, and it's cute. (laughs) But we wanted to also make a – we were actually experimenting in chat with a a new mechanic. Yeah. And I did finally choose your your recommendation of Resurgence. Um, We wanted something based on Threshold. Do you know anything about Threshold in 5e? Uh, no. So in uh, in the Dungeon Master guides, there's objects like boats that have a threshold, which means you have to do a minimum number of damage for something to happen to actually affect it. Yeah. So everything else is superficial. So I wanted a mechanic that was similar where if the players did enough damage in a single strike, it triggered something. Something that made it dynamic, right? That required no action uh, on the, the, the creature's... Uh, turn right so we changes com- the flow of combat yes a lot so we came up with resurgence um resurgence 10 which means if it takes more than 10 damage which is about a third of its health because you know you got players that are just going to destroy these things destroy things right smite yes uh, <laughs> so when the Ferroria takes damage from a single source greater than resurgence threshold it releases a burst of thick 10 foot cloud of 
fog that spreads around corners and lasts for 1d4 plus two rounds. That's pretty cool. Or until wind blows the way. You're just going to take the wind out of my sail like that, huh? Yes. (laughs) All right. We're also going to give it a, uh, since we took away the bite, we're going to give it a claw mechanic. So it'll do 1d6 plus one slashing. um, And target creature needs to succeed a a DC 12 con save. Or its movement is reduced by 10 for up to one minute. Um, The creature can repeat the saving throw at the end of each of its turns. So now we give it a slowing claw attack. Um, The next thing we're going to give it is very much along the line of a dragon breath, which is called, I called it frost tail because I totally was thinking about Pokemon where they just turn around and slap and magic comes out of it. (laughs) Um, So I haven't decided if I was going to change that, but I like the way it is. Uh, The Ferrario whips its tail and releases a 15 foot cold of ice um, for 2d4 damage, um, taking half as much on a success. It's very simple, straightforward. Um, What do you guys think about this? Um, I mean, the idea has merit in terms of uh, the cuteness level. When you first mentioned that, I was thinking of the oh, what was the name of it? The the cute child uh, furry friend D and D setting that you Furhaven. Yes. Yes! Oh my God, they're so cute. (laughs) Yeah, I think this would be a great. not as a playable uh, race, but as an animal like a, that the Furhaven characters would encounter. Ooh, I like that. I like that. That's really cool. What did you think? I think the thing is, you just need to throwing Pokeballs at it. Just saying. <laughs> <laughs> it is adorable and does look like a Pokemon. But what did you guys think about the resurgence ability? Do you think that that's it's a nice, cool kind of mechanic? Yeah. It's a, it's a nice touch and it makes sense. It, the defense mechanism for a creature like this, so yeah, yeah. and that's kind of uh, and it totally was inspired by you know a skunk, except instead of it blowing stank, it blows cold. <laughs> I really almost called it, called it. Uh, never mind what I was going to call it instead of frost tail. Uh, but anyways, uh, it's a really fun one. It's meant to be a critter that's not aggressive, um, and I think it would be fun to just kind of run into in the middle of an Ar- uh, Arctic style adventure. Now they can still slay it, but. I'm going to be honest, DMs, if you're going to use this, they will make it a pet. They will do <laughs> said thing. Of course, then you can have one person that it just doesn't like, and it just poofs off in the middle, so now they've got a portable magic item that's living. Like, oh, we want to hide. Rub it. It doesn't like when you rub its tail. <laughs> and poof, everywhere. Start pulling it at people and pointing it up. <laughs> okay. <laughs> now I got a little far. All right. I think, wow. I think that'll do it for our monster, the Ferroria. Um, if you like these sorts of things or these ideas, I write full backstories and, and, uh, knowledge check data for you to share with your players along with beautiful art for our patrons. Consider, uh, checking it out if you want this and many more that we've made over at patreon.com slash good Academy. All right. And would you like to tell us about our encounter? Our encounter is the spearhead of the clan chief. Ooh, this is good. Virgilda, an elderly seer, is seeking the aid of adventurers. Through her divinations, she has seen an item of power that hides deep within the Burning Spear cultist territory. It's guarded by beasts, brutes, and magic. Of course it is. The, <laughs> the item she seeks is called the Spearhead of the Clan Chief, which is a circulate of blasting. The characters must remove it from the hands of the vile Burning Spear. She warns characters to be wary. For the spearhead is likely in the possession of one of the agents of the burning spear. If true, then their power would be much greater than those of the mains that surround them. Yeah, the locations of the cultist cavern uh, opens around alongside of a river. It's a perfect spot for them to enter and leave from, as well as a powerful way to bring goods and equipment into their sanctuary. Berghilda believes that um, with the correct tactics patience and a little luck (laughs) the character should be able to enter the cavern retrieve the spearhead and return if possible if possible she would like to see all of the burning spear punished so she will have a special reward for the characters that can manage to deal with the entire cult within the lair but that's a tall order this is the first quest that i have ever made that is straight up go take them out Go take them out. So now here's the question. What do you put in this encounter that makes it challenging? Depends on what level the players are. So for me, 
it's got to have traps. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, when I when I was writing this, I was designing a, around an idea of it being like fifth level, right? Mm-hmm. So you got to have traps, and the first one that comes to me is glyph of warding. Things that just blow up when you get too close, I think is great. <laughs> um, but I also think that them seeking out a magic item mm-hmm. to give to somebody else mm-hmm. is something that no rogue is going to let happen. <laughs> I don't think any rogue is going to let that happen because that magic item is way more valuable than anything <laughs> this Elder Seer probably has. I'm not familiar with the circle of blasting. I've heard of the glove of blasting, but not a circlet of blasting. Uh, it lets you blow stuff up. Oh. I, I, I don't actually remember the exact detail because I wrote this like two weeks ago. <laughs> <laughs> if somebody want, you want to look that up and get the exact details, but I think it lets you cast Fireball, if oh. I'm not mistaken. Um, oh. I, could, I could be wrong because it's been a while. <laughs> it's just like, what could take the shape of a spearhead and be deadly? But anyways, this is a really interesting one because um, I think this could go either way. If she... Uh, if you set it in a way where it's a deadly encounter, if they try to take them all out, mm-hmm. then you can give a really, really nice reward to the players here. You can use like a Scorching Ray. Scorching Ray. That's far less deadly than uh, Fireball. Yeah, because that's the same thing as the Glove of Blasting, but it's a glove. Yeah, so you're basically just Iron Man <laughs> is what it sounds like. Yeah. Boom! Yeah! Um, so yeah, so it's pretty simple. What are some really cool tactics you would uh, like to include here? Um... I would say have like the most deceptive person uh, be like the infiltrating spy. Okay. Um, okay. Just to get to get the lay of the land and whatnot. Oh, that's really good. The Burning Spear Cult almost looks like a name of an Orcish clan. Spoilers. <laughs> no, it's okay. It's fine. Anyway, uh, <laughs> carry on. Um, so the thing that I do think about is cool about this is because it's there. You, I want to take their name into consideration. The burning, right? Yeah. So when I think lair, I was thinking grabbing the 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 red dragon's lair actions and just having switches that the people can pull when they have infiltrators. Yeah. yeah. So everywhere they go, the entire time they're inside, there's a lair action. So you're the entire time they're in there, it's a dungeon crawl. Yeah. It is round after round. <laughs> yeah. Great way. Yeah, that's a great resource if you want to uh, implement a series of traps into the layer itself. Yes, layer actions from creatures are powerful, powerful tools, and if you're not using them, you should. (laughs) All right, uh, that'll do it for our encounter. Um, Matthew, would you like to tell us about our magic item today? I really like this. Okay, the magic item is known as the Illusionist's Hand Wraps. It is a wondrous item. It is uncommon, but it requires attunement by a spellcaster. The hand wraps were created by a particularly gifted illusionist. She was able to bind her unique gift for casting multiple illusion spells to her hand wraps. So, while wearing the hand wraps, you can cast the minor illusion spell. Whenever you use an action to cast the minor illusion spell, you can use a bonus action on the same turn to cast it a second time. Interesting. What do you guys think? That's handy. That's interesting. That and that makes you create. Wraps. <laughs> 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 Wait, I missed it. What do you say? <laughs> he said it's handy because they're hand wraps. That's funny. <laughs> oh goodness. Oh yeah. So I was tinkering with some ideas and. A sorcerer using Minor Illusion twice with Quicken Magic, I was like, man, that would be such a fun magical item where it allows you to cast Minor Illusion twice. Wow. Minor Illusion is pretty versatile, but it does have a limited kind of range. Yeah. Being able to cast it twice not only means you can create an image, but you can make a sound at the same time. Or you can make two, two sounds in two different directions. Oh, like if you're being chased in a three, and you're at a three-way dead end, and you... Go one direction, but you set off the minor illusion. Yeah, in the other footstep two. sounds in either direction. So now, even if they follow one or the other, they're still going to go the wrong way, <laughs> which is great. And it's great also for shielding too, right? Because you can make a illusionary wall, right? Mm-hmm. Now you can make two of them to hide behind. Now, obviously, if they shoot through it, they're going to learn really quick and be able to see you. But that's still one wasted action that takes uh, a disadvantage to attack. So it's a pretty simple one, but I thought this was cool. What did you think, Ian? My illusion in the hands of a player is a very useful spell and just just gives it more utility in that regard. Some people would argue that it's a little too powerful, but I disagree (laughs) because it has so much DM fiat 
it needs to have as much description as it has. Yep. So, all right, that'll do for <laughs> that'll do for our magic item, the illusionist hand wrap. Our dungeon master tip is table talk. Oh, this is a good one. It's a good idea to set expectations on how the players talk at the table. Yep. What are some examples of this, Ian? Well, one is make it clear who is speaking, the character or the player. Yes, I've been in a table where anything you said was automatically in character. What about you, Matthew? I've been in games like that. I did not usually enjoy those games. Yeah, because you can't, can't talk with everyone. I agree. It was horrible. <laughs> um, another example is can players offer advice if their characters aren't present or are unconscious? I've been in this game, too. You can't do that. Your character's not there. I was like, the player needs help. Player. By the way, this is one of the reasons I had a, 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 a real um, excitement for Wizards because of messaging and, and, and stuff that allowed me to do that yep. when I wasn't there. Yeah. Um, also, can the players give other players information, such as how many spell slots they have left? I'll see why not. It's part of the game. Right. I, I don't know. Yeah. I've seen people be really able to, like, don't tell me what your hit points are. Your character have no concept of hit points. It's a game. Don't be surprised when people treat it like a game. Yes, and people forget that, and the spell slots goes the same way. The last thing is, can players take back what they've said their character does? It depends on the circumstance. Yeah. Sometimes you have players that joke around a lot, yeah. right? Um, and I think that that... And sometimes it can be confusing whether or not they're in character. Yes. And so, for me, the expectation is, I don't care. Talk, don't talk, whatever you want to do, because we're all here to have fun. Yeah. yeah. And for me, it's all about we're all having fun and a good time. And if that's how, what's fun to you, who cares? Yeah. And also keep in mind, too, that everybody has d d different play styles, and everybody has fun in different ways, too. Both DMs and players. Yes. Yep. But if you, oh, So if you are going to do some of this stuff, make sure everyone's okay yep. with it. Um, and I do want to stress because of that, just because... Just because, like, uh, sometimes the way some, something, the way some people may have have fun, if it's not, even if it's not the same as yours, that does not mean it's wrong. It's just different, and people seem to forget that sometimes. Well, yeah. it's important to note that if the people at the table don't agree that's fun, then you are doing it wrong. <laughs> it depends. Yeah, for example, if the I, other people aren't having fun, well, but I'm I'm saying it depends on the the circumstance, of course. He's wrong. No, it's our job to make sure everyone has fun. <laughs> Now, yeah. your fun may not be for that table. Right. All right? So keep that in mind. Yep. But it would be for another, potentially. Yeah. Yes. And sometimes you have to step away and say, you know what? It's not for me. Yep. And vamos. That'll do it for our Dungeon Master tip, Table Talk. Our player tip of the podcast is... Don't, don't be, be a dick. dick. Today we're going to talk Class Axe Rogues. This comes from Dragon Magazine 39, written by Derek Guder. Um, and if you're wondering why I use so many dungeon magazines, it's because I collected a lot of them as a fourth edition player. So it's a powerful resource. Yep. Um, so not every rogue skulks in the shadows, you guys. Did you know that? Yeah. Yeah. A dagger in one hand and a bag of ill-gotten treasure in the other. Always keeping an eye out for uh, a back to, uh, keeping an eye out for a back to sink a blade into. Now, some ply their skills openly as locksmiths, trap makers, dungeon guides, who take great pride in their work and feel no need to hide their talents behind deception. Now, some would say that the shadows might eat them all alive. Others, that they are simply pragmatic. Mm -hmm. A few outsiders refuse to believe that a smith who crafts a lock can't resist the temptation to crack it open and take away the protection that it guarantees in its own right. So it is with the, uh, so, so this is really cool. So it is with the fraternal order and inner vault, also known as simply the vault, a secular and honest guild of rogues who reject a brutal life in the shadows for one of honor and brotherhood under the light of the sun and civilization. Oh. And, I've seen some antique and historical watch before, and some of them get surprisingly intricate. <laughs> yeah, they do. What do you guys think about this concept? It's an interesting That's one. Interesting. I'm I'm kind of thinking of 
uh, the charismatic rogues who put their expertise in performance. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. Especially if they have the, uh, what was it, the <coughs> actor's background. Yep. Mm-hmm. And I, I, what I think is cool about this is, as a DM, mm-hmm. if a player came to me and said, I want to play a locksmith, mm-hmm. it would be my job, nay, my honor, to have other NPCs come and say, hey, we um, <clears throat> found this box and we can't open it. Other rogues. We can't open it. We need your expertise. <laughs> Pull out the paperwork. All right. Where'd you get it from? Where'd you find it? What time? Who Who was the last person to see you with it? Mm-hmm. And start taking a list just to make sure that what they're about to open is not stolen or misappropriated. Yeah. I think that would be such a fun role play moment. <laughs> Don't you guys think? Yep. Yeah. What are some uh, ways you would get some fun out of this? An honest rogue. I mean, I can definitely see the rogues like having a professional like, map maker as well. So it could be explorers or trackers Ooh, or trap finders or bounty hunters. There's, there's definitely options. Yeah, I definitely like that. Plus, is the information that they're sharing with the guild going to be confidential? Ooh. So do they have to share their own like, findings? No findings. Oh. Like, okay, I figured out how to pick this lock. Do I have to give that information? Mm-hmm. And then, what if one of the players has the Zentara background, whose sole goal is to get into that brotherhood to find all the stuff that they, the skill that they've acquired, and then pilfer it and share it with others? Ah, yep. there you go. So much good stuff. So much good stuff. All right. Any other? So much uh, potential. I know, right? <laughs> and so, what I think is cool about this, though, I, I kind of span us a little more now. So, to me, this is interesting because. Because you know they have a, a, a renowned for breaking into stuff, do you think do you think that this type of person would try to change other rogues or try to say, hey, you shouldn't do that? Or, um, hey, guards, that guy trying to break, he's using a lockpick toolkit trying to get in the house. I don't think it's his. Do you think they play something like that, a snitch? Because mm. they got a brotherhood amongst their good, honor-bound rogues. Hey, right? you're picking up lock. Do you have a permit? <laughs> a guild approved permit? That's a good one. That's, That's a, a great uh, like circle back. Yes, that was a nice callback. Yep. Um, all right, I think that'll do it for our player tip of the podcast. Don't, Don't be, be a, a dick. dick. And you can avoid dickitude by not all ro- rogues are bad. Some of them just want to pick a lock and show you around. All right. Well, that was a fun and exciting episode in spite of the few uh, struggles we started off with. But um, as always, we like to give away uh, products at the end of every single show for our RPG Fat Loot giveaway. Today, we are giving away the War Chanter. Now, the War Chanter is a product brought to you by the Crit Academy. This is one of uh, my personal favorite uh, class options that we've made because it really leans heavily into the the bard theme, but it also does it in a fun and unique way. So the war chanters look to the tales of legends of heroes of past for inspiration. The weapon of choice is the pole arm on a bard. You're welcome. (laughs) This stems from the idea of standard bearers carrying uh, a visual representation of their beliefs and their honor and their strength. As such, the weapon often has a small standard with an intricate design or a coat of arms that hangs from the end. Not only can they sow discord, but they can rally your their allies. They can heal them. Yep. They can do a variety of different things. And um, when it comes to combat, they can poke a few bitches. Just straight up. Uh, <laughs> But when they when they place their their weapons skyward and create a rallying point for their comrades, it's never going to be they're never going to not want to be on the battlefield. So what made this class really unique is that it uses its pole arm and its war cries to do more mechanical based buffs um, beyond even what bless can do, which I do think is is one of the more common. Uh, common kind of mm-hmm. effects along that lines, and I think the War Chanter really expands upon that even farther using their own hit die. I think. Um, all right, so who is our winner today, Matt? Uh, the winner of this giveaway is Machine.GMC. 
congratulations, machine.gmc. If you enjoy the product, please do us a huge favor. Leave a review or just a rating. You just press It's literally a button. Um, let other people know what you think of the product. Um, if you didn't win, Ian, how can they be entered to win? No problem. Go ahead and go to our website. Go ahead and subscribe. Yeah. Subscribe. That's it. All that good stuff. We yep. have a newsletter that goes out every a couple times a month yep. with lots of free goodies. Once a, once a month. Once a week. Once a week. It goes out once a week. Wow. Don't lie to people about how they're going to get emails from us. <laughs> once a week. Uh, <laughs> uh, and there's usually lots of good uh, uh, blogs and resources for you as a dungeon master. We want to take a moment before we close out um, to uh, let everyone know that uh, Crit Academy Map Pack is now available on DriveThruRPG. It's 12 hand-drawn maps um, by the amazing Gene Lorber. <clears throat> All of our patrons will be familiar. Uh, these are ones that were from the past, and he did really, really good work on. And we wanted to share them not only for personal use, but for commercial use. So if you're a content creator who's making adventures, the maps are available to your use or for your usage. So head on over to rebrand.ly slash critmappack and pick it up. Yeah! And if you enjoyed the show and want to support us, head on over to CritCamry.com. Follow us on social media and leave us a review. We love those. <laughs> I got a really awesome response on one of our TikToks for our weapon perks. And it really – the guy's like, I can't support this enough. I've been using this for years and it makes a huge impact. <laughs> <laughs> a huge impact. Get it? Because weapon perks. Especially when you use a Warhammer. Yeah. Right. Uh, <laughs> anyway, so we really like reading those. It really shows that people are liking our content and it helps us, keeps us motivated to do more, right? Yep. All right. I want to say thank you to Matt for filling in. Hopefully it wasn't uh, too terrible. No, uh, this was great. I got a chance to see the new studio. Uh, it was great to uh, be in person with you guys yeah, again. Yeah, wow. Yeah, been a while. So, <laughs> yeah, I love it. I would try to sing, but I don't want to. <laughs> uh, well, that'll do it. I am your host, Justin. I'm your co-host, Ian. And I'm your co-host, Matthew. Thanks for listening. Keep your blades sharp and spells prepared, heroes. Keep your blades sharp and spells prepared, heroes. Can we all do that together? Yep.